0: We want to help you with your most critical roadmap problems. And a utility exec might be like, Well, the heck, you're gonna? <laughs> like, That's you know? <laughs> great. Welcome to Catalyst, the Launch by NTT Data podcast. Catalyst is an ongoing discussion for digital leaders dissatisfied with the status quo and yet optimistic about what's possible through smart technology and great people. Be sure to subscribe in your audio feed and help spread the word on these worthy conversations. Joining us today is Brian Carney, a technology executive and electric utility subject matter expert, Brian has decades of leadership experience in utilities, spanning work across the United States that most recently found him as the Vice President and Chief Information Officer at Arizona Public Service, APS, where he led a team of over 520 FTEs and technology partners. We're going to dive deep into the culture and challenges in the electric utility space. And we'll talk about the opportunities and new technologies driving next-gen experiences for consumers here on Catalyst. Let's welcome Brian to the studio for the very first time. Brian, how you doing today, man?
1: I'm doing good. Thank you for the intro, Clint. Very flattering. And <laughs> thanks for the invitation. This sounds like this could be a fun session.
0: I think it will be. And I always love it when people got a good LinkedIn profile that, that it's, a, it's right there for you. So thank you for serving it up. And uh, now that's just a bit of a tease. So why don't you tell the audience a bit of your professional background, your experience, and maybe a bit of how we got to now.
1: Okay. After leaving college, I, uh, I joined the United States Marine Corps as a commissioned officer and served with the marines for just a little under 8 years resigned my commission at the at the rank of captain and most of the time that I was in the marine corps I was involved in technology doing command and control tactical data systems out in the field after leaving the marines i uh, i did about a decade of public service with some local governments two counties in uh, the state of california and also served as the it leader of the city of fort worth texas during the early 90s so about a decade of civil service and then i left there and went to a company In Oregon, Uh, you guys may know it as Harry and David. It's really the Bear Creek Corporation and and worked with the uh, Fruit of the Month folks serving as their chief technology officer. Great opportunity. That's fun. Fantastic place. Fantastic company. Leading edge technology all the way through. I then got involved with utilities and I did my first true uh, stint with a smaller utility up in Boise, Idaho, the Idaho Power Company. And I served both as the CIO for Idaho Power and for their holding company, Idacor. And we had several subsidiaries that were under the auspice of Corps. We had an ISP. We had a financial arm. We had a development arm. We had affordable housing projects in most of the states of the United States. And I did a seven or eight years with Idaho Power and then found myself working in Carmel, Indiana with uh, an organization called the Midwest Independent System Operators, better known in the utility ranks as MISO. And MISO is, a, is an ISO, an independent system operator that serves I think at last count, it was about 28 states, 27 states throughout the Midwest and the Canadian province of Manitoba, uh, managing uh, what at the time was the largest wholesale electricity market in the entire world, and obviously handling 150,000 miles of transmission assets as well. And then uh, somehow wound up back in a pure play utility out here in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, where I spent the last couple of years serving as the vice president, CIO for APS, Arizona Public Service. I retired four or five years ago and have been doing my own little consulting throughout North America, trying to stay engaged, informed, and involved within the electric utility sector. A couple of years ago, picked up work, kind of a strange story all in itself, working with a small software company, well, small relatively speaking, named Nexient, and got involved with them. They reached out to me to see if I could help them with getting them a little more traction within the utility uh, vertical. So that's quick background
0: yeah no well there's a lot of places to go there too just for the interest of the story and and first and foremost thank you for the uh, the years of service as a marine that's that's always My pleasure. Uh, amazing to hear about and you've been around this country quite a bit so i gotta ask you know there's people out there that uh, live in a region or two you've really been around it quite a bit do you have a favorite spot in the country either a favorite city or just a favorite like area that just kind of spoke to you to the most with the time you spent there
1: well, being a person that can't hold a job, you're you're exactly right. I've been around in quite a few places. <laughs> and we currently live in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is beautiful about 9 to 10 months out of the year, but scorching hot in the middle of the summer. But if I had one place to pick, I think our favorite place both for my family and the schools and just everything involved uh was Boise, Idaho. Now, that was back in the early 2000s when, you know, the the population was much smaller. Sure. I'm told Boise has changed quite a bit, but the weather in Boise the outdoor activities. So I think the, the state of Idaho is just an unknown uh, treasure for our country.
0: Yeah. So i I recently took a trip out to Montana, and we drove through western Montana and then northern Idaho. And I was just absolutely uh, gobsmacked with with the beauty of, of that country. It was between the lakes and mountains and just valleys and just. And like you said, though, there were lots of cranes. You know, there were especially yeah. when he, when he hit Idaho and some of those lakes and rivers. There was a lot of growth around there, but I get it. You know, I get the why. Really beautiful country. And That was really cool to see. It was my first time. First time through that area, which is super cool. And you mentioned the the origin with Nexient. Nexient was acquired by NTT Data, and then it became part of what's now Launch by NTT Data, which I work for, and we do this podcast from the seat of Launch by NTT Data. So Nexient reaches out to you because of your expertise that they want to establish. A little bit more authority and, and understanding, really, of how to approach leaders in the utility space. So, you, you get that going with uh, anybody in particular? Like, how long ago did that start with the Nexian work?
1: Well, it was a kind of a fluke meeting. I actually met the father of one of Nexian's senior account executives. His, his name is Alec Zeidler. His father lives in my neighborhood. And I can't even remember all the details, but somehow Alec and I got into a conversation and I didn't really know what the conversation, where he was going with it. He finally got down to, it. he asked me if I'd be interested in helping them make some contacts throughout North America for uh, utility executives. At the time, they had had some major utility accounts. They had Detroit DTE, they had PG&E, mm-hmm. they had Sempra, and they had some other interests in the state of California. So they had a good foothold, but they they really were genuinely interested in understanding more of the culture, more of the challenges, the business, and and what drives the entire utility sector. Uh, Obviously, I kind of represent the electric side, a little bit of gas, but mostly the electric side. And they were very interested in not for me to do any of the sales work for them, but rather to help them reach some utility executives. And how they were approaching other companies in other sectors didn't seem to be working as well for them in the utility space. And they were wondering if they were doing something different or something wrong. And so, you know, we started off the relationship in that manner, and it's been a very, for me, a very fulfilling opportunity. I get to talk and chat with some former colleagues, some former friends, and, and meet new people all across uh, North America within the electric utility sector. It's been a good exchange.
0: Yeah. And I know Alec personally, a very good dude. I didn't realize that was the actual origin story of how you got to Alec or how Alec got to you, but very cool. And you mentioned that there was a an understanding or maybe even a realization that, hey, what we're saying to other industries is landing more effectively or or flip that. What we're saying to utility executives is landing with less efficacy than it's landing elsewhere. And There was probably some ah ahas and just things that you could bring to the table, I'm sure. So as we start to discuss the utility sector in general, what are some of those cultural values, the priorities, the things that that make up the DNA and fabric of utility that do make it unique?
1: Well, you're right. How they were approaching other executives and other sectors seemed to have a higher success rate. There was more willingness to actually meet with CIOs and other business decision makers. And the utility sector was just really slow to interact with Nexian. Obviously, then Nexian got absorbed by NTT data, and Nexion got rolled in with a couple other high-tech firms. They were smaller to make up Launched by NTT data. This very impactful group, I would say that total FTE account for this group within NTT is about 1,000 people. But they're fast-moving, they're hard-hitting, and they're very effective. But before the Acquisition of by NTT. I spent a good bit of time with uh, leadership of Nexient. I also went through their new employee orientation. I wanted to know what it was like to be a Nexient employee. I wanted to know their culture, their company, their business processes, their way of of doing things before I got too fully involved with them. Because if I was going to reach out on their behalf, I wanted to make sure I was being genuine with to you know again my former colleagues and peers across the industry. So I spent a lot of time getting to know them and then got to know each of the account executives. They have the North American broken into five regions. And so I got to know the folks inside of each of those five regions and set up a little bit of a repertoire as to how we go about making making connections. And it went pretty good. Again, my job was not to make sales. My job was simply to make the connections, you know, to get past the guard dog at the, at the gate and then see if I can get some people to be interested in doing some then Zoom calls. This was obviously at the front end of the COVID period, yeah. and so there w- wasn't a lot of in-person work, a little bit, but not very much of that. It was mostly all done over Zoom or uh, Microsoft Teams, and it went pretty good. After I did the uh, orientation and got to know NXIVM a, l- a little better, I then spent some time with them to teach them a little bit about the utility sector itself, what drives them, how their business operates, the different classes of utilities, be it a an investor-owned, a vertically integrated utility, be it a, a pure-play Genco or generation company or transmission company, an ISO or an RTO or a muni or a co-op, there's different classes of utilities. And so we worked on trying to understand what, what those are. And then I try to boil down, and this is always dangerous to do, I try to boil down some generic cultural aspects of utilities, what their priorities are, and then what some of the trends or what some of the things that they're, they're dealing with. And that's always difficult to do or dangerous to do because it's kind of typecasting them a little bit. And there's always going to be exceptions to some of the things that, you know, that I noticed. But if you give me a few minutes, Clint, I'll unpack. Let's begin with the culture. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. And so I'll unpack that a little bit and just hit the top couple. When I talk to people about utilities, especially their executives and whatnot, the first word I always think of is that they're very conservative. And I don't mean that from a political sense, but rather and maybe conservative isn't the right word. Maybe it's risk adverse. Mm-hmm. And you'd say, well, well, why? Well, in a little bit, I will talk about some of their priorities, and you'll see why they're risk adverse. And there's good reason. Risk adverse could also be, you know, coined as being very careful, mm-hmm. being very measured, being very specific, and and probably most importantly, being extremely safe. And again, when I get down to you know talking about some of their priorities, you'll see that safety is everything inside of electric utilities. In fact, all utilities, but. Within the electric utility companies, uh, safety is very, very important. And that's very appropriate, you know, because their product will kill you. And the equipment that they work with is large and and dangerous if not handled properly. Other things that I, when I think about their culture, they're extremely community focused. Typically, they serve, you know, a large geographical area with a mixture of different types of cultures within their, their region. And so they're involved. They're in there. They know their customers. They try to get to know them even better. They know the businesses that they serve. They get involved with things like the food banks. They get involved with uh, you know housing shelters, youth sports activities. They sponsor a lot of walks. They sponsor a lot of runs. If there's a worthy cause, you know I can speak for you know APS Arizona Public Service here. If there's a worthy cause to be involved with, you're going to see APS involved with that, and you're going to see APS employees. It's not just the money thing either. It's APS employees, and and every utility I've ever been associated with, we're involved. The staff is involved. And it's it's almost, from a cultural perspective, it's expected of you as an employee. So, you know, to wrap that up a little bit, when you think of it from a cultural perspective, think that they're very conservative or risk-adverse, think that safety is always on their mind and that they want to be community-focused, community-involved, good stewards of their assets. When I think of them culturally, that's kind of how I think about them, Clint.
0: Yeah. Well, it's it's almost a little Rockwellian, right? In the sense that it's like, it's hyper local. They actually want to be embedded in the community. And at the layer of it all, like the thing that permeates everything they do, even if you go to uh, the, the APS website, the first thing on the, on the H1 is, I think it's safety. And then I think it's like safety, oh, safety, comma, something else. So it's almost like a bit of a throwback in a way like you said conservative and risk averse and those things but it's also like when you when you blend in the culture it is a little bit more like hey small town like we are we are here with you and that i would imagine permeates through the people and then also influences culture influences decision making and so what does that mean if we were to look at like how do they get comfortable with Outsiders, yeah. you know, like you might be a bit insular by your your nature because of that. So how do you get comfortable and understand that, hey, but we do need help? And for that, we gotta we gotta open up a bit and also trust as you do it.
1: Wow, you wandered right into it, Quinn. I'll tell you, as a culture, especially in IT, we're very cautious to bring in new vendors. We'll look at everything, mm-hmm. we'll go to the trade shows, we'll do, we'll have a lot of conversations, but we're very, very cautious. When you combine the electric utility with technologies. Mistakes show up at the speed of light, Mm. and they happen across the wide geographical area affecting a lot of customers. And again, there's a safety component to that as well. But we're very cautious. As You'll struggle getting in to see an IT executive at a utility company. You'll struggle doing that. And that can be misunderstood. They're that way. And I was that way, too. I'll admit, I was that way very much. I was guarded. We're that way, again, because mistakes show up very, very quickly in an extremely inconvenient way at an extremely inconvenient time. So we work with each other. I made very few major decisions without calling 10 or 12 people with the same job function mm. and say, this is what I'm thinking. Tell me where I'm wrong. What am I missing? What question am I not asking? Or have you worked with these people? Have you worked with this particular company? For most part, we don't compete with each other in the electric Most of them are regulated monopolies, if yeah. you will. Yep. So the competition is not there to where I'm, you know, I'm keeping things close to, my, to the vest. We're a very tight community. We share, we have common problems. We get common regulation. We get common you know, laws that are passed and rules that are passed that we all have to deal with. And so we outreach to each other quite a bit. So breaking in as a new vendor is difficult to do. You have to go through the process. And you know, it's like anything else with credibility. You gain it very, very slowly as a new company. You get credibility. It's by the inch. Mm-hmm. But when there's a little bit of a problem, you give up that credibility by the mile. And so that, I think, is one of the things that Nexion was struggling with, because if that's not understood up front, utilities can seem to be standoffish or slow or uninterested, and they're really not. The whole time I have a new vendor talking to me, I'm thinking, well, OK, what could go wrong with this? What, How could I get hurt? How could this go? My mind is going crazy with all those things. So I'm going to go slower. I'm going to make decisions a little bit slower, and I'm going to involve more people in my thinking. So that's kind of where a new company can struggle at getting to know folks inside the electric utilities sector itself. Now, flip side that, once you get in, once you prove yourself, once you get a little bit of branding going and get familiar, then that can work for you, if you will. And so that there's both good and bad in that too, because you know, as a as a company, you don't want to be taken for granted. You don't want your vendors to be complacent and not give their best and whatnot. So you gotta you got to work that relationship very, very hard. Getting in is hard, but Mm. once you're in, it's a good relationship. Typically
0: yeah, I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into the getting in aspect, so you said you retired from from your job a couple of years ago now, and if you were still on that seat, so what are some of the capabilities, skills, and maybe even like types of projects that that are either lower risk but can still prove value so you can get that comfort level because there might be that blend of well, I want to see what they got but I don't want them on critical path stuff right away. So is there a, a trade-off and is there a, a balance to find, to build that credibility, to help each other find that comfort?
1: Well, there is. And you do look for those places that are safer to involve people from the outside. Here's where, you know, for most of my career where I struggled, and if you think about it, Clint, managing really in leadership is, is a lot about managing scarcity. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough talent. So you're managing things that are in scarce supply all the time. And so you have to go outside. You have to involve vendors. You, You need newer things. You need expertise. And so the first thing I look for is the appropriateness of using my organic staff, okay, or using outside staff. Many companies, but particularly in the utility ranks, they're built to operate. We have great operations. We look for that harmony of the wheel on the bus going round and round and no exceptions. And we build and we staff and we get rewarded by the regulators for providing that reliable power, okay? So we're built for that. We're not built to do these large development efforts. We're not built, in most cases, to do large upgrades. We're not built to do science projects, okay? Mm. That's not how we're staffed. We dabble in that every once in a while, okay? Okay. Every once in a while, you know, if I wandered around enough, I'd find one of my guitar players playing on a <laughs> piano. And I'd have to say, whoa, 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 wait, 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 And you don't want to keep people in the bubble, but you have, to, you have to kind of manage who's doing what type of work. And then I look for the appropriateness of using folks from the outside. So I don't want to bring on hot shoes, you know, high-skilled talents as a full-time employee if I only have like a six-month project for them to work on. And then I got to do a layoff decision mm-hmm. or find something else for them to work Rather, what I do is I look for people who bring those skills, you know, that that's their core competency. That may be on a major system implementation or system upgrade or filling some niche staffing thing that I need on a short-term basis. Now, I've had contractors who who stayed with me for multi-years because of the relationship and because the value add that they brought. But most of the time when I'm doing a large development project or if I was doing a, an upgrade or or an implementation of sorts... Those were the opportunities where I would reach out to, to the high-tech vendors and go through an RFP process, go through, you know, maybe competitive fly-offs, go through that vetting to find out which candidates would be the best to bring in on this level of effort. And then I would require, as part of the work being done, a little bit of that cross-training. You know, you put, put some of your organic staff in with the, with the vendor staff, and hopefully through some osmosis that some transfer of knowledge takes place. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, that was even a contractual requirement to make sure that the new tech folks would influence the organic staff so that when they leave uh, at the appropriate time, that we're left in good hands, capable of maintaining the op- what we've put in place for a nice, smooth operation.
0: It makes a ton of sense. It's reminiscent of some conversations I've had with folks in the in the healthcare industry. We had a guest on, his name's Paul Livko. He's the CTO of uh, Wellmark Blue Cross Blue Shield. And now he actually uses a, a what he would call like a third- leg of the stool where he's got his his ftes he has his go-to partners his technology partners and then he also he bursts out to crowd platforms to do a specific things so he uses that as like an on-demand workforce that he's blended into uh some of his work streams the piece that is very similar was your viewpoint on looking for the skill sets that have you know those specific things that have a, a already predetermined time horizon like hey that might be here four to six months but I, once that project is done, I don't understand how I could have that person here FTE-wise, so it becomes advantageous to, to burst out and have that flexibility to, to find skill sets, bring them in on project work. So I totally understand that. Are there specific examples where you took advantage of that like they, where it's very appropriate as opposed to having to hire uh, all those for the IT staff, you, you got that blend that you needed, and you know maybe some uh, examples you can walk us through?
1: Yeah, I, w- I would say on some of the larger implementations that we did, you know, I think back to when we did CIS, which is the customer information system, which is one of the, you know, 900 pound gorillas in any major utility company that and EMS. When I think back upon those projects and staffing for those, again, it was a mixture of the best and the brightest showcasing their products and, and us selecting one and then mixing that staff in with organic staff, you know, and coming up with that, that optimal blend. Folks, you know, because the vendor coming in doesn't understand the business's processes and each utility is going to operate a little bit differently than one its neighbor in subtle ways. And so, you know, there has to be a meeting of the mind. All the processes have to be mapped. Well, organic staff is key on doing and that's not just IT staff. That's people from the business. Um, And then you also have the change management aspect where you have to culturally change, you know, when I think back to the CIS install we did at APS, the previous system had been in place in production for 21 years. There were people in our call center and that's the only system they had known throughout their entire career with APS. We were bringing in something that was, you know, revolutionary for them. Mm. So it couldn't just be something where you get the green lights on and everything's fine. The change management aspect of that particular implementation was, was as important as the design work, as important as any other part of it. In fact, probably more important. It went exceedingly well, but it was still very, very difficult. And so we needed experts in each of those disciplines to do the unpacking of the process, to map all those processes, to help us with design, to help us with conversion of our data, to help us with the change management, to help us know, in fact, you know, the QA aspects of those things, to help us know whether we're ready to go live, to go, no-go decision type of things. All of those, I relied on some outside expertise. And again, throughout the whole thing, behind the scenes, I'm also calling people who had gone through the similar experience, other companies that had recently gone through and saying, what question am I missing? What am I not asking? What do I need to look? You know, so we kept that outreach to our, our peers to find out because this has been done before and we wanted to learn from other people's mistakes. And there, again, because we're not direct competitors, we typically are very generous with past experiences, lessons learned, things of that nature.
0: Well, I mean, that makes sense because you, of course, respect one another and you're in each other's shoes in many, many ways. And you also innately understand the severity if something were to go wrong. People really understand the table stakes. Certain things, I'm sure there's less risky projects, but the ones that that are innately tied to safety, if it's a go, no go, you got to be really confident (laughs) as you you get that green green light and and go forward.
1: You know, Clint we have two big families of of applications or systems inside a, a generic utility company you have you have IT that takes care of HR finance you know tax or your IT systems and then you have OT okay which is all technology based or mostly technology based but it's the operational technologies mm. that's your energy management system that's your distribution system your OMS outage management system or today it's ADMS your advanced distribution management system those systems are much more risky Mm -hmm. Uh, they're more difficult we're slower to change them because the impact to the actual electrical grid itself they touch it okay yeah Yeah, things are bad when you don't get payroll done things are bad when you have problems in hr and things are bad but it's not like bringing down you know the grid okay and i learned that particularly you know utility companies are one thing but when i worked for the iso the independent system operator of that was very, very real stuff. EMS at, at MISO is so guarded, so backed up, so, you know, active active as far as its capabilities, it can't be down. It cannot fail. So with that level of thinking, that level of criticality, that mission critical thinking that goes into that, both in the implementation and in the operation and care feeding and watering of that, there's no running with scissors right. in that world. Everything is checked, double checked, measured many times, and you're always asking the question what am I not seeing? and you want to be open and available for other people to come in and say hey whoa 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 wait wait a second because it's that that critical. So those are especially hard opportunities for new vendors to come parachuting in. On the other side, those are a little easier to come in, you know. And then yeah. the space where then Nexian offered a lot of opportunity was taking those systems to the next level of of service for the the staff. Extra reporting that could come out of that, extra you know what can we do by building a warehouse for this? you know think that type of work the add on yep. type of work they found a lot of good a lot of good space in there that and a lot of integrating those types of systems and the data to feed the retail customers out there through mobile devices and and through their website so
0: yeah, it's a delicate dance and balance and and that partnership of understanding, okay, look here's the playground, here are the things in which you can have an impact, whatever the technology vendor may be. here are the areas in where you can go experiment rapidly with with new experiences that can be touching end users and used as a consumers and their mobile apps and things like that that remove friction provide more data and through that provide uh, better interfaces and better service without the risk of uh, something like you said actually touching the grid potentially right so so that balance of just finding the space together because i could understand years ago when alec was saying hey we're having a hard time coming in because I think a traditional vendor might say, Hey, we want to help you with your most critical roadmap problems. And a utility exec might be like, Well, the heck are you gonna? <laughs> like, you know, it's like, hey, right. there's stuff here, but we're gonna move a lot slower with a lot more, like you said, mission critical, dotting every eye care. And then again, as the relationship builds and as the relationship matures, the aperture can widen. And then that appetite to do things with a vendor uh, and a partner. Can become riskier over time. it would it would seem like because there's more trust, you've built that up up over time. exactly and you're able to then just open more things up to the right technology partner that that can get onto your critical roadmap. But it's an interesting dance there. So we talked, quite a bit about the culture. And that was, that was, I think, exceptional stuff for folks to really, really understand it from, from your purview. Let's flip it over to some of the the major pains, the challenges. What is specific in the, in the utility world that faces them that are big time obstacles that, you know, others either a take for granted or simply just doesn't hit their industry?
1: Well, let me preface the answer to that question with a little bit about, what our priorities are because those are the main drivers what are our priorities some of them i've already mentioned obviously safety we wrestle with number one and number two which is safety and reliability reliability means the flow of energy for the grid to be operating in a very safe and reliable manner and you can certainly you can understand that the product is very dangerous to work with and certainly you can understand the product is very very precious you know if you think about electricity it's ubiquitous with the fabric of what makes up our society and when we're without it. We just don't function very well. And we have rolling blackout histories in in certain areas in the West that that will validate that, you know, reliability of the grid is paramount. You know, other priorities that they'll have will be operational performance and efficiencies. I mentioned earlier that we really don't compete. We're not, we do have a lot of oversight. We have a lot of people that watch us, the regulators, and certainly customers that watch us, but where utilities kind of compete with each other is through the J.D. Power Survey. Mm. And where we really focus in on is a couple of the the metrics that we look for, is how quickly do we respond to the anomalies, abnormal behaviors, or or things within the system itself or within the operation? How quickly do we respond to an outage? And then how quickly can we restore and recover from that particular outage? Those are very key things. There's a lot of other statistics that the Power Survey uh, looks at, Obviously, you know, the amount of time that you wait on a phone call, if you're calling a call center to report your powers out, there's other attributes that they look at. And we take great pride. They break the surveys down into, you know, geographical areas within the United States or North America, and then also by size of the company, size of the entity. And there's not an executive team that I know of whose compensation model is not highly driven by the results of that particular survey. And so we pay attention to those things very much. So that's kind of interesting. So yeah. operational performance and efficiencies are very high, you know, because that affects cost and the product price or what we call rates, right? Yeah. And some of these priorities will work hand in hand with each other. Others can work against each other. You know, obviously, we want to be efficient. We, we look for areas where we can be efficient because that gets cost down. And, you know, one of our priorities is to keep our costs down. But if we overdo on efficiency or if we overdo on operational performance improvement, if that's not managed, that can lead to increasing costs and maybe not getting the returns that that cost would warrant. Does that make sense that so all these priorities have to be managed by the executive team, or they get out of whack a little bit? Mm. Other priorities and this is part of the cultural thing, our image is extremely important to us, okay, how we're viewed within the community, and in particular, how we're viewed in the regulatory environment. What do our regulators think of us? Because they set the rates. And so the image, and again, image is one of those things like trust. you gain it very slowly, and you give it up very quickly yeah. when things go wrong so So, image is something that's very, very guarded. We work on that uh and it's not just the branding piece it's your average utility company wants their customers to feel good about them. They're writing us a check every month. so with that comes a lot of responsibility and obviously, the regulators they're put in place by a number of different mechanisms, some are elected, some are appointed by other elected officials. they're there to watch over. And to make sure that the utility companies living up to, we call it the regulatory compact. That because we're a regulated monopoly, in normal monopolies, costs can get out of hand, performance can, can wane. You need pressure a little bit, honest pressure. And the regulators provide that. They set the expectations. They set the table as to what the rules and how we're going to operate. And that's healthy for us. And then kind of the last, you touched on it a little bit with your example from the Midwest and in the insurance sector. Yeah. One of the other priorities we have is talent acquisition and staff development. Historically, we have struggled with that. I've been to some of the career fairs, you know, with the booths and whatnot. And the college kids, the best and the brightest, will walk right by us. Okay. And there they go down to the Google. They're to go to Apple. There they go down to GoDaddy. They're going to those shiny brands that are sexy and whatnot. We've typically had a difficult time attracting young talent and attracting the stars, if you will, coming out of of the various schools. We just didn't have a great reputation. These kids coming out of college might remember mom and dad arguing about the electric bill. Sure,
0: right. Turn the lights off. Turn the lights (laughs) off.
1: You know, who wants to go work for, for that? That's shifting a little bit with the technology that utility companies are bringing to bear. I would put the ISOs and RTOs, the Regional Transmission Operators, and the independent system operators, I would put those organizations and their their technology companies, okay? Uh, I would put them up against anything with regards to sophistication and cleverness and solid operations and solid procedures. These are beyond professional organizations. There's not a lot of them. There's only a couple in North America. They're incredible, absolutely incredible. And the technology that they employ is mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling. That's not taught. We don't know that coming out of school. We, you don't see that on television, whereas you see Apple products and Google, you know, advertise and things in this nature. So we've always struggled with talent acquisition. And staff development's always been a little bit of a struggle as well, because as I mentioned, we're built to operate. There's not a lot of time to do the cross. We look for any opportunity where we can cross train. When I was big on intern, I got indoctrinated in interns back at the ISO, and then when I came to APS, I got very involved with those. And I always tell the, the young ones, you guys got to fix all the stuff that we've screwed up for the last <laughs> two or three decades. So there's work for as far as the eye could see. It didn't stick to all the interns, but the ones that we were able to keep turned out to be incredible employees for decades. Working inside of a utility company isn't for everybody, sure. but for the right person with the right mindset, the f- person that wants to provide for their family as a steady Eddie and have good, meaningful community-focused type of jobs, it's perfect and it's the right place. So I, I give you all those priorities because, again, that's, that kind of helps us with, define our culture or, or kind of describes why we look the way we look and why we operate the way we operate. What I just told you is, is a lot of what I would talk about when I met with the account executives early on with Nexient to try to get them to appreciate that. And it was almost my way of saying, Slow down a little bit, yeah. and you'll be invited in. But you got to slow down a little bit. Can't go crashing in with all the answers real quick. I know you got good stuff. I know you got talented people. Got to slow down a little bit and get to know these folks and build that relationship. Because you talked about it. What is it? It's trust. Yeah, it's trust. Am I going to let you in my house to touch some of my valued treasures that could affect the people that live in my house? Am I going to do that right? Eh, I'm going to be a little slower on that. I think we've done a good job on that, but it's always something that we got to keep top of mind.
0: And and the the super interesting then, as you were describing some of those priorities that that I was able to just literally doodle on the notepad I'm working on is, you said the word brand, and then you evolved it a bit further beyond just brand. It's almost like standing, and you use the phrase, you want people to feel good about the utility, which again, like you said, is growing up as a 17-year-old or a 16-year-old, all you heard was, turn the lights off, turn turn the lights off. tough to feel good about that. But then you also talked about the talent attraction. And the thing that kind of resonates for me is right in the middle of those things, like having a brand that connects with people and attracting net new talent that wants to go work on stuff, it seems to me that that then is also, there's a lot of opportunity there that are, the net new experiences that are the oh, digitization yeah. of the data, the handing it back to consumers so they're more empowered and enlightened to, to make good decisions for themselves. But that epicenter of attracting talent and serving the people so they feel good about the utility, to me, kind yeah. of screams, hey, mobile applications and applications that are on the edge and getting data right from the source. Uh, do you want to you know, talk about that a bit?
1: Yeah, you know that's moving in our favor a little bit by what's going on in our society. Go back forty years, we'd burn some coal or or run a hydro or or operate a nuke plant. We'd generate that electricity. We'd move it to where the load is needed, and we'd send you a bill. Okay, and our relationship with you is that you pay your bill on time, and we'll do what we can about keeping your lights on. Okay, think about it today, though. And this is some of the pressure you mentioned earlier. What are some of the opportunities or pressures? Of today's utilities. Think about what's going on in our society with all the green energy, the clean energy, the renewables, all this talk of all this stuff. It involves a tremendous amount of complex technology and process change. You know, most of our utility companies, they've been in existence for decades, mm-hmm. decades. Okay. And these assets that they build, you build a hydroelectric dam or a nuclear power plants, these assets will last for decades and decades. And now what are we doing? We're introducing new things, new technology, wind and solar, and we're putting things in that, if not managed properly, will have a bad effect, won't have a good effect. It will be a bad effect. It will be a disaster, okay? Because again, reliability and safety, you know, mm-hmm. those are very, very key. You can't just inject new things. So, you know, if you have a, your wind farm, there's a whole process you've got to go through to be able to introduce that energy into that component of the grid. It just doesn't happen real quick and, and easy. But with all that type of work, the, with the technology and the, and 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 then the products that are coming out with electric vehicles and and charging stations and all the applications that can help you determine whether you should charge now or wait till the nighttime or charge on a weekend or or do I want to push energy that's in my Ford 150 electric lightning? Do I want to push that back? Yeah. Okay. Would it make economic sense? You know, to push that back? If you think about the disruption that that brings, this this historically. Wheels on a bus just go around and around. That's what we wanted. Now you have all this, as it rushed up um, to us, you know, 10 years or so ago, it felt like chaos. Mm. It felt like we were being invaded. And some of this came from the regulators themselves. You know, they would say, you know, we want this amount of renewables. We wanted to see these things in these particular areas. And we got pushed because left probably to our own accord, we'd, we'd probably just say, let's just burn the coal and let the water flow through the dam and turn the nukes up, you know, mm. to 100% when them operate. So it was a good, healthy push and that injection is driving even more things because when you think of generation classes Clint, think of firm those are your hydros your coal your nuclear plants you know you turn those things on you get them up running you know at a high level and you leave them you just leave you don't want to be moving those around you don't want to move those units around if you got to move around okay for peak you know time of day commute and all that stuff everybody comes home from work they turn on the air conditioner all that stuff then you start using some of your, your gas, your peakers, because supply has to match demand all the time. If demand outstrips supply, you've got a real problem. That's when you have your blackouts. That's mm-hmm. when you have real issues. And so energy generation is broken down into firm and non-firm. So what's non-firm? Well, most of your renewables are non-firm, okay? Your wind, your solar. If the, if the wind's not blowing, right there you go, yep. okay? If there's a cloud bank that comes over you know, New Orleans, so much for your solar component there. So you have to be able to recover And you have to be able to match that loss of generation, you know, within a fraction of a second. The tolerances here are very tight. Okay. Obviously we operate in North America on a 60 Hertz system. That means you have a wave, you know, its frequency is is 60 times a second, Mm -hmm. right? So if you lose those generation assets, you have to make that up or very bad things happen. So by putting renewables into the fabric of things, you know, wind and solar, which are non-firm. You have to complement that with some other technologies now. So you're hearing a lot now about storage. Now, we've had storage before. If you think of a big reservoir, that's really stored energy just waiting to go through a hydroelectric dam. We've had compressed air projects across North America, well, throughout the world. But the new storage are these battery banks, okay, these large-scale batteries. And, you know, they'll charge those things in an off-peak time. And maybe sometimes the renewables would charge those, okay, And then when we need to call those, mostly for regulation purposes, to keep the frequency at 60 hertz or to keep the voltage steady, okay, because those have very tight tolerances around them, that's where some real, unique, high-caliber technology work and product and integration come into play. So there's real neat things coming in that make us more attractive today than we were 20, 30 years ago for the college kids to look at. And not just the the trades, you know, folks in the trades. Uh, we need a full spectrum of work. So there are some exciting things that are going on. I think we've only started to scratch this itch. I think that you know, energy trading. At some point in time, if I have solar on my roof and I generate more than I use, I push it back to the utility company, typically in the form of a credit. Okay, yeah. It, yeah. that's how I receive that, and they'll pull it back at a wholesale rate, and they'll resell that at a retail rate to some other customer. It's
0: a good business. Yeah. <laughs>
1: that's great, and they'll run the bills and do all that type of stuff. Yeah. I think within our lifetime and I, I think shorter than that probably within the next decade why can't I just push that to my neighbor right directly peer to peer okay or the guy you know 10 miles away who's going to generate who's going to develop that market and the utility would be the transport and maybe the billing engines and whatnot but there's the opportunity for a market to be created there that maybe I want to push it to my uncle over you know 10 miles away and give him the opportunity to bid on you know why couldn't I create a marketplace for that so I think the possibilities here are, are nearly endless as, as new invention comes up, as you know some critical thinking comes into the space, and, and certainly as the price goes up, mm-hmm. that's going to drive innovation to either, re- how do we reduce that or how do we replace that energy source with something else that can do it cheaper or that's more abundant? So I think those opportunities are going to continue to come at this sector, and we have to get ready for that. In all cases, we're not ready for it, and some we are. But in all cases, we're not ready for that. And that's going to be a slow, and and for some, it's going to be a painful process to go through.
0: Yeah, that sphere of, of starting to look ahead and just seeing the tea leaves, seeing what's out there and understanding that, yeah, well, every single day there's folks who are whatever the the brand is, but of course, like the yeah, Tesla being known for, okay, look, you could do the whole system, right? They started a long time ago and it wasn't to create a really great car, but they were very out in front being like, this is a literal vehicle for a sustainability play. They were, you know, out in front of that, very honest about that from, from Jump Street and if people are paying attention, you could see the things they were putting into motion that were well, okay. Well, then we got solar and we have our own tiles and we have power banks, and we're encouraging through this uh, vehicle and then the power banks the individualism, the ability to have your own agency around your own ability to generate and, like you said, trade and partner to move energy. And that can be a gigantic liberator and also progress maker because i mean i, I had a, a gentleman on his name's clemens conrad and he focused very much on mobility and the future of of looking at evs and the future of what it means we actually ended that discussion with hey the play was to to individualize uh, utility and then to give people that that kind of power And the realization that the electric companies, the utilities, the the traditional ones have such a huge partnership role to play in that new ecosystem. So a lot of it is business model reinvention and reimagining, okay, how do we play in the next five to 10 years? Because this is coming. And having the right partners to sit down with you and I I would say also challenge, right? Be honest about this That say, hey, if you just keep doing what you're doing and you don't look to the future at all... Well, good luck. It's not probably not the best strategy to cement your next 100 years and continue to be super valuable and still live your values, right? Be valuable in the hyper-local community, which has always been your driver, but just now in a new way. So as you look at three, five, 10 years, what do you think some of those opportunities and challenges are?
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. You don't want to be the person left holding the buggy whip. <laughs> right. Whatever the next buggy whip's got to be here, I don't. I don't really know. We have a lot of challenges and opportunities, some of which are being mandated through regulation, legislation, things of this nature. There's going to be a push and whatnot. Others are going to reach for it from a technology perspective. I get real excited when I think about AI and the art of the possible for that. Utilities, man, we never met data that we'll ever let go of. We mm. love data. You know, we have these meters. That, you know, if the average person understood exactly how much data is inside one of those meters, it's mind boggling uh, what we can do with that. The problem has always been processing that in enough time and in a cost effective manner to be able to do something productive with all that mm. data. So we have a lot of data that comes off not only of consumption, what customers are doing, OK, their behaviors. And we have a map pretty good, but further mapping them down to time of day, day of the week sporting events that are going, like what happens when the Super Bowl goes? Mm-hmm. How does that drive the consumption of energy and things of this nature? We have a lot of that, but we can refine that a lot more. When we look at the operation of the grid, the grid, the big stuff, the transmission system, when we look at that and we have synchrophasers, which are phaser measurement units, PMUs, we call them, that actually can interrogate the grid some 60 times per second wow. okay, and tell you things about what's going on. But that can become very overwhelming, and it can actually paralyze operators who have to make decisions, you know, when they lose a plant or they lose a transmission line. But with AI and the ability to process faster and, and more so, that data, I think, is going to find a very rich place within the go-forward for operating a utility. If you think about it, Clint, the amount that we consume, the amount that we burn, all the things around us are very, very large numbers. Mm-hmm. And you really only need to shave off a small, small, small percentage. And that's a pretty big number, too, because of the scale that we're dealing with. And so if there's technology that can bring into bear that helps save a quarter of a percent here, a half a percent there, when you monetize that, you're talking about billions because mm-hmm. it's, it's really the law of great big numbers that, you know that's going on. I think that the uh, energy transition movement, I think as we look for other solutions to meet our energy demands, our needs, and I think we'll continue to do that. I think those opportunities are out there for for utilities and other entrepreneurs. I think you're exactly right. The Tesla experiment, that should have shown us a lot of, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. It's not uncommon to stop at a red light and there'll be a Tesla or two in front of you and a couple behind you, maybe one to your right or left, all at one stoplights. I mean, the proliferation here is very deep. I think that the whole renewables, be it solar, wind, other mechanisms, I think that'll continue to challenge utilities. Again, if they're going to keep their priorities and their culture in place and intact, they have to find ways to integrate those assets seamlessly into things that have been in existence for 50 and 60 years, and they have to operate just so. And I think that's always going to be a challenge, at least for the next decade or two, that's going to be a challenge for us to, to maintain and to grow. And I think with that, uh, utilities need to prepare it's not going to stop. I mean, the expectations, our usage is not going to wane over time. In fact, it's going to do the exact opposite. So I think utilities and other companies have to prepare for that. And I think a big piece of that preparation is that topic we talked about a little bit ago, which is talent acquisition. We have to continue to bring, I, you know, I operate in my household personally very differently than how I see my kids who are in their early 20s, how they, they've grown up with a mobile device in their hand. They do everything with their phone. They don't even use the computer much. They do all their transactions and things of this nature via the phone. So those are going to be the consumers of the future. How do they want to interact with the utility company or any other company? The consumer is going to change how we have to behave our processes because their expectations are going to be driven by the regulators and the regulators are going to push. Again, regulators for the most part are either elected or appointed by somebody who's been elected from the population at large. So their priorities, their concerns are going to come in and continue to push utilities forward, or in some direction. Maybe it won't be forward, maybe it'll be sideways. I don't, but they're going to push them in some direction that utilities need to prepare for. And I really think that talent acquisition is key to that.
0: Yeah, I think that's an awesome place to leave it, Brian. I loved it. It was, for me, fascinating to get that deep into the, the culture of it and then the very unique challenges that are there. And then when there's challenges, well, what's on the other side of it? There's opportunities. And it's going to take some boldness. So the next 100 years are are not just as successful, but even more successful. And the cool part for me is that the things that govern utility, the fact that you want to deliver efficiently and reliably and safely, that's not going to change. Those things won't change. But the ways in which it gets done are going to change rapidly and in really, really specific and profound ways. And at that epicenter is going to be some great talent and new experiences driving all that. And that, that to me is, is super exciting. So Brian, by the way, best way, folks, if they want to get in touch with you to say, hey, I've got some questions, how should they reach you? Is it best to find you on LinkedIn? What's, what's something you'd, you'd like to share?
1: They can always find me on LinkedIn. as under Brian Carney, spelled K-E-A-R-N-E-Y. Or if they wanted to contact me directly uh, through email, my email is very simple. Uh, these are all letters, five letters, A-B-K-I-S, that's Alpha, Brava, Kilo, India, Sierra, at Yahoo.com. Be happy to talk to, uh, to anyone that's interested.
0: That's so cool. So, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today on Catalyst. In this studio, we believe in shipping software over slideware, that fast, will follow smooth, and aiming to create digital experiences that move millions is a very, very worthy pursuit. Join us next time as the pursuit continues on Catalyst, the launch by NTT Data podcast.